Hello and welcome to PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Hartitz. Team Preview Edition is on the way once again. Today, we are talking all things New York Jets. And by we, I mean myself and the one, the only, he's here every time, basically, Dwayne, the Rock McFarlane. Dwayne, what's up, man? Man, it's been so long since we've talked. Like, I just, I feel like we we have so much to catch up on. No, man, I'm good. Uh, projection season is here. It's like, uh, that's how I was born into the fantasy industry like i just started doing my own projections and then that led to all these questions that i had and that led to more research and then all of a sudden it's like you know uh here's what i'm doing for a living now so that was a long time ago i remember last uh summer one of my buddies mikey was like hey uh you know this guy's like ranked rb5 in your pff projections you have them in your rankings like rb13 i was like yeah like it, it, it makes sense and it was like do you have 30 minutes for me to just explain to you like the process that goes around all this mike and he was just like oh overwhelmed whatever so what do we do Dwayne? we have a 45 to an hour podcast on all these teams to figure out exactly what's going on because we don't just rely on rankings or projections we try to uncover every freaking rock there is and i will not stop till we have perfect preseason accuracy this is the year Dwayne 100 on every single player and if we don't get it we'll watch the film get better try again in 2023 so if we don't get it if we don't get it Yankee will so that's we'll true cover. that's true we, we always have that we always have a uh, fantasy pros ranking expert Nathan Yankee to get our back so as always on these team previews want to quickly go through any notable front office coaching staff roster changes then we'll go through the nitty-gritty at quarterback running back wide receiver and tight end so with that said don't have too much to talk about here with the Jets coaching staff. They are largely all back for year two. Head coach Robert Sala, offensive coordinator Michael LaFleur, and defensive coordinator Jeff Ulbrich all back again. And the return of the LaFleur should be good for the passing game. I was kind of surprised on this, Dwayne. Last year, the Jets actually had a 65% pass play rate in non-garbage time situations, fifth highest mark in the league, and they ranked seventh in situation neutral pace. I just think this was an offense that, you know, if there was an offense we can really throw out, I know people are pretty, you know, because of the whole Urban Meyer hoopla, it's been, you know, really trendy. Just throw out everything Trevor Lawrence did. But I think Zach Wilson deserves that same benefit of the doubt, man. For him to suffer, unfortunately, his knee injury in week seven, right when he was starting to get going. I mean, that Titans game he had in week five, by far the best 60 minutes he put on film. He comes back. He gets to play with Corey Davis for one more game. Elijah Moore for two games. You know, Beckton, their freaking left tackle, barely played all season like this team never really had a chance to get off the ground because of all the injuries that were kind of impacting different position groups in a year that we were kind of expecting Zach Wilson to go through some growing pains in the first place. Overall thoughts on what we saw from Michael floor and what you're expecting from this offense, from a scheme standpoint going into 2022. Sure. Uh, I mean, number one, um, the jets trailed the second most uh, in the NFL. So when I say trailed, they trailed by four or more points. So on 70 or sorry uh, on 60% of their snaps, um, they trailed by four or more. The NFL average is 38%. So they were slightly above the average. So you have to throw a lot of this stuff out. And even when you look at the neutral plays, so like when you look at the plays where they were close, only 31% of their plays were within three points. But within those, we did see them actually want to run the ball a little bit more. So whenever they were with, whenever they were in that specific situation, they actually only threw the ball 56% of the time, which is 4% below the NFL average. And then whenever they were leading, which was never, they were 31st. <laughs> They only led by four more points on 10% of their plays. I'm sorry, Jets fans. It, it has nowhere to go but up from here. And a lot of positives, actually, with the, with the offseason. So excited about it. Um, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to take too much from that. Basically, they were just behind all the time, 
right. and, and we don't have a big sample size. But we know that this is a Shanahan stylistic right offense. We've seen them now add two tight ends. I know you'll go through the personnel moves, but I think the writing is on the wall that if if they can, they're going to want to be a more balanced offense this season. Try to set some things up for Wilson through play action, which they didn't use very much of. That was the most surprising thing to me when I went and looked at it. Ian, only 22.1% of the time did they use play action well below the league average. In fact, they rate 28. Like a, a staple of the Shanahan offense, right, is using that play action. Um, the trick look, like we just talked about it, uh, if folks haven't you know, probably heard yet, but we talked about the Dolphins last episode. We talked about Mike McDaniel who also comes from the Shanahan scheme. You know, they were doing some things there 13.1% of the time. So just trying to give the defense something different to think about, right? Um, so just to open things up a little bit more for the quarterback, shift motion third, 69.5%. I think we're hearing a trend. It's like we've got the 49ers, we've got the Dolphins, we've got the Jets, all run very similar offenses. So I think that we should see more of the benefits, right, this, this year. Last year, just they got – so far behind so early in games i think it was just hard for a lot of these things to truly play out and come to fruition to help zach wilson and i think the improvement and the targets that are around him which i know you're about to cover now i think those things those are all positives especially for zach wilson good notes on it being a bit more of a run heavy offense than kind of what first first meets the eye like yeah non-garbage time situations but when you're trailing freaking the entire season uh it's tough to exactly you know assume that's going to be the baseline for more neutral uh, spots so would seemingly yeah maybe definitely probably not going to be you know definitely probably good job ian Uh, not going to be a top five (laughs) or top 10 pass play rate offense maybe they do you know approach that average mark but we should still see plenty of meat on the bone for Brees hall and company so Quickly, free agent signings, not nearly as long as everything that went on with the Dolphins. Uh, backup running back Austin Walter remains a free agent. Wide receiver room, Jameson Crowder is now Josh Allen's starting slot receiver. And Keelan Cole remains a free agent after starting 11 games last year. The big moves were made at tight end. Tyler Croft and Daniel Brown, 2021 contributors, remain free agents. Ryan Griffin is now employed by the Bears. The guys they brought in, CJ Uzoma and Tyler Conklin, the ex-Bengals and ex-Vikings tight ends, respectively. Not cheap. Uzoma got a three-year, $24 million deal. Conklin got a three-year, $20.3 million deal. Spoiler, we don't care about either of these guys really in fantasy <laughs> land. I mean, the fact that the fact that Uzoma and Conklin were their offenses full-time tight end last year with a more proven and better quarterback and probably a more more pass-happy offenses as well, and they couldn't give us more than low-end tight end two production. Like, what would need to go right this time around uh, for that to improve? It's more crowded. The offense is probably going to run more, and the quarterback play is going to be worse. Other than that, you know, things are looking great for them, I guess, in 2022. And, oh, yeah, they also drafted Jeremy Ruckert in round three to seemingly add a third party uh, to the equation. So Ruckert also is someone that was kind of being lauded and I thought gained gained some steam as we got closer to the draft because he is an all-around tight end like he's not just this block first player he can make some nice catches as well I'm not even sure if he actually registered a drop during his time at Ohio State so adding him to mix usually we we talk about two tight end rooms being too much to get behind fantasy once you have three might as well be a death sentence fade that group but with running back and wide receiver we did get some major pieces added in the draft First-round wide receiver Garrett Wilson with the 10th overall pick. Now, it looks like the starting slot receiver between Elijah Moore and Corey Davis, but we'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. And also second-round running back Brees Hall. Sure looks a lot like the team's starting running back after they they traded up to get him, right, at the beginning of the second round, Dwayne, or were they just there to begin with? 
They, they uh, traded no, up, I think. I'm pretty sure yeah, they did. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if they traded up, but it was early second round. I've already forgotten. <laughs> I think so, because some of our uh, PFF employees, uh, too, the ire of uh, Jets Nation have just been trashing uh, the thought of trading up to get a running back. So, you know, I can. we don't need to get into team-building principles of it. Brees Hall is a good football player. I think we all agree on that. And it's good to have good football players on your NFL team. Uh, thanks for listening. And it's good for fantasy football, so we're yes, okay with it. Exactly. <laughs> if, if we can't appreciate a running back landing on a team with some available opportunity in fantasy football, when the hell can we appreciate it? So with all those in mind, Dwayne, let's start talking about Zach Wilson and what he could possibly bring to the oh, team. Oh, real quick, left guard yeah. Lakin Tomlinson added that. And you get McCoy. Becton back who basically only played one game last season so those are those are big pluses for the offensive line and I, the one other thing I'll say with the tight ends I know they added three but I think that's showing that they would like to play more heavy personnel there wasn't necessarily a fullback that they fell in love with like what we talked about with the Dolphins but I think we'll see more 12 personnel um, this season I think who knows how the game scripts will play out but I think personnel moves show intent right they added another running back. They added multiple uh, tight ends. They made additions. They made an addition on the offensive line. They invested a first-round pick the year before on the offensive line with Elijah Vera Tucker. Um, so I think there's definitely investment in what they want the ground game to look like. And, yeah, that offensive line, like, that's not a given for these other quarterbacks. That was kind of the big hole we talked about, that the Dolphins didn't do that great of a job filling this offseason. With all due respect to Taron Armstead, I know they didn't completely ignore it. But you look at the other rookie quarterbacks and the 49ers with Trey Lance, who obviously couldn't get on the field, were the only other team in the Jets that were actually giving their quarterback a chance with what they had up front. PFF's 11th-ranked offensive line by the end of 2021. So they have had some things moving around. You know, I know Van Roten's out of the picture as well, so – Ideally, though, this will continue to be an above-average offensive line because now, Dwayne, Zach Wilson actually has above-average weapons to work with. I mentioned how he sprained his knee in Week 7, and once he got back, I mean, by the end of the year, Braxton Berrios looked like a god out there because he was running around next to guys like Jeff Smith and DJ Montgomery. So I am confident that he's going to have the better weapons. Let's see him make that jump, though, because it was ugly last year. 38th in PFF passing grade among 44 qualified quarterbacks. 42nd in QB rating. 32nd big-time throw rate, 31st turnover-worthy play rate, 39th yards per attempt, 38th in adjusted completion rate. With that said, if you put on the film, Dwayne, you see a lot of flashes. The sort of just off-platform can throw this ball, you know, a mile like Uncle Rico back in the day. Zach Wilson, like, the play is never dead when he's there. And, like, these are the types of players that I love to try to root for because for better and for worse, they're entertaining out there. And if they can just put it together, then, you know, we're looking at a freaking stud and not just a stud, but someone that's really fun to watch. So that's why I refuse to give up on Drew Locke. I was a sucker for Johnny Manziel back in the day. Swag Kelly, not just because they're white quarterbacks, but because they just have this crazy arm talent and they can they're thrown off platform. They're not just doing the Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, yeah, you know, cool league high yards per attempt, Jimmy, like make me, make me laugh and smile as I'm watching your film. Like, you know, I want entertainment out there. And I think that's what Zach Wilson brings to the table. The question is whether or not that entertainment can put up fantasy points. Cause ultimately that's what we're looking for. I mentioned this a little bit with Tua, Dwayne, but the, if you look at quarterbacks that were nothing as a rookie in terms of fantasy points, I just used the 15 fantasy points per game threshold under that. We want nothing to do with you. Usually 31 quarterbacks have played at least eight games, scored fewer than 15 fantasy points over the past 10 years. Every rookie quarterback other than Trey Lance who didn't have enough games qualified from last year. So I took out some of the other quarterbacks that, you know, just weren't able to kind of hold on to their starting job. 
We did see some success stories. Derek Carr went from 12 fantasy points per game as a rookie, 16.96 the next year. Mitch Trubisky went from 11.2 to 18.8. Blake Bortles, 12 to 19.76. Carson Wentz, 13.3 to 21.7 in that, you know, near MVP season that he had. So I get it. Carr, Trubisky, Bortles, Wentz. We kind of saw what happened during the rest of their respective careers, but it's not completely out of the realm of possibility for a rookie quarterback to be as bad as Wilson was last year and then to turn in into a actually pretty solid fantasy contributor as early as year two. Now, I'm not just going to mention the good ones. We had Josh Rosen, Dwayne Haskins, Geno Smith, Brandon Whedon, Case Keenum, EJ Manuel, Teddy Bridgewater, Tua, Sam Darnold, Ryan Tannehill, all represent signal callers who again average fewer than 15 fantasy points per game in their second season as well. So, Dwayne, with Zach Wilson, like he's not someone that anyone's dreaming about, you know, entering this season as your QB one in a normal fantasy league. You don't have to draft him that high. He is dirt cheap. Are we okay with prioritizing Zach Wilson ahead of guys like Trevor Lawrence, like Mac Jones, who are available at these later rounds of the draft? Because right now, based on the O-line, based on the weapons, based on the flashes that we saw with our eyes, I am okay putting him there, you know, really going on a limb, having him as like my QB 18 and taking him ahead of some of these other question marks at the end of drafts. Yeah, I think we just know less about him than some of the other guys. Now, Trevor Lawrence, he's just got better weapons, right, than what we've seen with Lawrence. I mean, I'm, I'm still going to have Trevor Lawrence slightly ahead of Zach Wilson, but I think especially like in best ball, um, you're just looking at how did your draft start? Um, and if you happen to have Garrett Wilson, you happen to have Elijah Moore, like you're going to be pulling the trigger, you know, on Zach Wilson, like as your QB two, Right. And I think that's, I think that's fine. Um, when I look at him, I also kind of did, I did some of my own research. I did it from the lens of a PFF passing grade. And so I looked at all the rookies that actually had a PFF pass grade of 55 or less all the way back to 2006. This is the list. Josh Rosen, Deshaun Kaiser, Derek Carr, Blake Bortles. Um, I'm going to skip Bruce Gredkowski. I'm not going to count a six-round pick <laughs> against him. So these are first and second-round picks. So Josh Rosen, Deshaun Kaiser, Derek Carr, Blake Bortles, Brandon Whedon, Blaine Gabbert, Christian Potter, Mark Sanchez, Matthew Stafford, um, Josh Freeman, and Vince Young. So not a very impressive group. But you do have Derek Carr. You got Matthew Stafford in there. And so it's kind of like – kind of like what you fantasy. He gave us that year. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, but it's kind of the same point as you. It's like, it's overall, the list isn't great, but like, um, you know, you're saying there's a chance, like there's a chance. <laughs> I mean, the big thing for me with Wilson, 10% sack rate, like you can't do that. Like that's just killing your team. And he owned 20%. He was accountable for 20%, you know, of, of the sacks, Not great. Um, you know, yeah, not great because the NFL averages 14%. So he was 6% above that. So he's going to have to do a better job of, you know, getting rid of the ball a little bit quicker. You know, you don't necessarily want to take that part of his game away because really the best, that's where the upside could lie, right? The the best quarterbacks we see in this league, um, uh, not all of them. There are some that get it out quick, like Brady and Peyton Manning used to do this. They get the ball out quick. They're awesome in fantasy. But we also have the Russell Wilsons. We have the Aaron Rodgers. These guys, they know how to hang on to the ball longer. Patrick Mahomes does the same thing. Josh Allen does the same thing. They use the scramble drill to their advantage to really hit these big plays down the field. And those can lead to really huge fantasy points and major boom weeks. The problem is they've also mastered the other side of how to not let, you know, because I'm going to hang on to the ball a little longer to still be able to manipulate the pocket, not let that turn into pressure, not just immediately bail out and scramble, you know, too soon. So it's like, hopefully that's what we see from Wilson this year. I think if we could see him take that step forward and now like he's using some of that aggressiveness, 
but he's also not taking the sacks, the forced fumbles, those sort of things that happen whenever you get sacked. I think there is a lot of room for him to improve. And I think a big part of it also ties back to the weapons that you talked about. I mean, if you've got Elijah Moore, you've got, um, you know, the, the two tight ends that they've added, you've got Corey Davis, you know, you've got Garrett Wilson that you took at pick 10. Like, I mean, arguably like, look, these guys still have things to prove, but like we could be looking up in two years and be like, wow, like Zach Wilson's got like a top five receiving unit, you know, top yeah. 10 receiving unit. Like it's totally within the card. So because of those reasons, um, yeah, it is risky. His comps don't necessarily look great, but I do think the upside, if he hits, like, I think there's some potential there. The guy can run too. I mean, that like 50 yard touchdown run he had against the Jets. I mean, it wasn't a complete fluke. Like he is mobile out there, I think. And I'm not just, you know, Jersey watching, but it's kind of similar to Sam Darnold where you're kind of surprised when you see it happen, but we've seen it enough now uh, to at least know it's there, man. I mean, four rushing touchdowns in his final seven games uh, for Zach Wilson, and we saw last year with Sam Darnold. Like, he was the NFL's leader in rushing touchdowns throughout the first four weeks of the year and had all you fooled into thinking he was going to become. Yeah, I wish he would scramble more, to be honest. Like, he didn't scramble very much. Like, last year, like, his scramble rate, hang on, I'm looking for it. It was pretty low, 3.6%. Like, and, you know, the NFL average for scrambles, you know, it's like 6%, uh, 4.3%. So he was just under the league average. I'm like, man, I would love to see him scramble like 6 7%. Like, because to your point, like now part of it is kind of lifted by the, by the long play that he had. But as far as like his ability, whenever he is running um, and we see this a lot of times, and you've mentioned this before, like the younger quarterbacks, you know, even though they may not be scramblers later in their career, early in their career. Right. That's that additional um, pop that they can give you. But we didn't see that with Mac Jones. Right. Another quarterback that we've already talked about. We haven't seen that with Tua. I think that that upside is definitely there with Zach Wilson. Let's just get him a little more involved, let him scramble a little more, and use him a little bit more maybe in the design run game. And that's exactly why I have Wilson over Tua and Mac Jones and also over Trevor Lawrence. I mean, I know Lawrence runs as well, so that's not the reason there. But everything we talked about in terms of the offensive lines and the weaponry, I mean, credit to the Jets building through the draft. Like, that's what smart teams should be doing. You can throw some resources at your defense, at the offensive line. And I think they've done a decent job of that over the years. Uh, You know, when you see these teams just spending all sorts of money, you know, doing the sort of contracts one after another in free agency, like – doesn't always plan out. We saw the freaking Patriots do it last year, and that didn't really pan out. We can go through the list. So I will take Wilson over Lawrence, and then guys like Daniel Jones is where I think, Dwayne, you put it best uh, talking about it. Like, you know, we only have one year of Zach Wilson not being good. Uh, we have several more of that for uh, Mr. Jones, unfortunately. So Zach Wilson, for me, is at the top of the tier of kind of the dart throw quarterbacks because before him, I still think, you know, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Tannehill, Carr, Cousins, Watson, like they're just kind of in a different tier, I think, than Zach Wilson. Is that kind of how you're feeling, Dwayne? Like, please, for the love of God, even in best ball, like don't leave a draft with Zach Wilson as your QB one. <laughs> right, yeah. And I, I have it as a tier as well. And I, I, I like Wilson at the top of it, right, for the reasons that you just said. Yeah. All right, let's talk some running back. As I've gone through, I was actually doing this this morning, kind of trying to look at everything I could with Brees Hall, Michael Carter, Tevin Coleman, and Ty Johnson. I came out of it maintaining my standing on Brees Hall, who we've you know talked about a lot throughout this offseason already because of the draft and everything. He remains my RB16. I think you'd be hard-pressed to rank him too much lower than that, anyone's idea of an upside RB2. It's Michael Carter who I've soured on a little bit. I actually want to move him down after going through this because – 
I don't know if there is really a best case scenario for Carter. Like we're kind of assuming he's going to be the pass down back when I don't even know if that's an assumption. Like if anything, I would almost expect it to be Brees Hall in for two series, Michael Carter in for another series. It's not like Carter is this, you know, pure scat back that the Jets refused to give a legit workload to. I mean, he did have stretches last year, particularly towards the end when Tevin Coleman was out where they were using him on over 70% of the snaps. I mean, that happened on three separate occasions. He had at least 15 combined carries and targets in six of his non uh you know, six of his 12 non-injury induced games so michael carter he's not bad by any stretch i mean if you look at how he was breaking tackles last year you could argue he's pretty damn good like legit was up there with javante williams when you include what he was doing as a receiver on top of some of the rushing stuff but the draft capital is still there for him. We've seen that trend, you know, go beyond even the rookie year. It's not quite as strong, but we still don't see. I think it was like 67% of, you know, top performing running backs uh, were drafted inside the top three rounds, regardless of experience. And man, like, does Michael Carter have more best case upside than A.J. Dillon, Tony Pollard, and Gus Edwards? I don't think so. And I don't even know that he has higher standalone value than those guys. So, Dwayne, overall thoughts on Brees Hall and Michael Carter. I know you've been, you know, really pounding the drum for Brees Hall throughout the process. And large reason because we've seen over time these rookies tend to rise up after the draft and we find out their landing spots. So I'm with you for the value. I'm with you with Brees Hall as an upside RB2, the athletic profile borderline erotic i mean this is a pretty damn good landing spot the more we look at it i mean they're just how many better teams could he have gone to like yeah buffalo but with that out of the way houston there just weren't that many better depth charts for him to land on i'm with Brees hall i don't quite see michael carter being someone that should be going where he is if anything michael carter strikes me as someone that i was making this mistake before i looked at it harder like we have michael carter kind of ranked in the mid-20s and when Brees hall went there we just bumped him down a little bit I think if we would have just started the rankings after the draft and not had him in the 20s in the first place, probably would have been bumped down way further. Yeah, I mean, looking at Carter, like his ADP is now down to RB41, which I think is fine. That's where he should go. At that point, you're looking at a guy that could give you some, especially like in best ball, he's going to probably give you some spike weeks off of his big play uh, ability and catching some passes out of the backfield, right? That's a good, that's a good a- spot for him. But he gives you contingent value that if for some reason, you know, you have Brees Hall go down, well, Michael Carter, we know we've, we've seen him come in and be able to do it. He showed it for short bursts last year. Yeah, they could still get some of the other guys involved, but we're not really worried about Tevin Coleman. We're not worried about Ty Johnson. I think in year two, if Brees Hall went down in year two, Michael Carter would be, I would feel really good about having Michael Carter on my roster, right? Not that we want Brees Hall to get to get hurt. So I think that's where he deserves to be. He's an RB four with upside, right? He, he might give you some spike weeks here or there. And if you lose Brees Hall for two or three weeks, he's probably going to be ranked inside our top 15 running backs. And so I think that's the way you got to look at Carter. Um, you know, he did some really good things last year, you know, especially in the receiving game. Like he was borderline Alvin Kamara, Christian McCarr- uh, uh Christian McCarra, <laughs> Christian McCaffrey level. Um, so I think th- those are things that like just always stick out. Like I don't really forget them. Like I'm just constantly remembering. Yeah, it, was far- it was the freaking Mike White games. Urgh. It, it, well, that's okay. I mean, it, it, I mean, you could argue Alvin Kamara played with, with Mike White <laughs> his whole career, like a, a good version, right, of Mike White, a check down guy. You know, so, so yeah, I mean, it does matter having Zach Wilson. It does matter having these, but at the end of the day, the point being like his yards per route run, his targets per route run were much, they were a lot higher than what we typically see for running backs. So that definitely stood out to me. And he profiled as a really good receiving back coming out of college. So it was like kind of everything really came together for Michael Carter. Um, If you look at Brees Hall, you know, to your point, like there really wasn't 
like an elite landing spot. You could argue Atlanta or Houston would have been better um, because the, you know truly is just as wide open. He probably would have. He might have had like a. We might be projecting him for like 300 touches, right? Yeah. One of those offenses. Not going to quite project him for that here. But even if you just look back to 2012, running backs that have gone in the first or second round, um, here's what they've averaged: 221 PPR points, 209 attempts. 50% of their team's rushing attempts, 9% adjusted target share. So that's taking away games where they were injured. Um, so that's 51 targets. Um, and so, I mean, when you're looking at that, you're like, okay, I could get a back that gives me 209 attempts, 51 targets, um, 220 PPR points. And we could be wrong. He could have a larger role than that. Like I haven't projected right now for 52.5% of the rushing attempts for the Jets. I've got Michael Carter at 30% and I got just a little bit like to Tevin Coleman. Um, so I have him at 214 rushing attempts. I've got him at 46 targets and I feel really comfortable with that. Like it could be a little lower, but I think there's also ceiling to your point that there could be more than that. The worst case, like what we do not want to see happen to Brees Hall would be if they say, look, Brees, you're the early down back and Michael Carter, you are the passing down yeah. back. That would not be good because if the Jets don't improve, we just talked about how much they trailed last year. Like it would essentially be Michael Carter would be in the DeAndre Swift role and Brees Hall would be in the Jamal Williams role. Like we don't, you know, we don't, we want to avoid that scenario. So I'm really hoping it's what you said, you know, two out of every three series go to Brees Hall. One out of three goes to Michael Carter. I think that's logical because Brees Hall was a good receiving back coming out of college. It's not like this. This guy doesn't have the questions that Kenneth Walker has, right, as far as being in the passing game. So, And it was a great fit schematically, wide zone. And one of the favorite things that the Jets can do using this Shanahan style of offense, that's really what Brees Hall was best at, you know, as a rookie. And like you said, we've really hit on all those things already, so I'll leave it there for Hall. But I think he's locked in, you know, and he's RB17 right now over at FFPC. You've got him at RB16. I think I have him at 15. I'll have to go back and look. So we're, we're really close. Let's just talk about this potential committee before we move on to the wide receivers, because looking at Michael LaFleur, he wasn't calling, you know, Shanahan runs his ship in San Francisco, but you would like to think that LaFleur had some sort of input in that. And it's been a committee system in this San Francisco era. In 2017, Carlos Hyde had 299 touches. That's the only 49ers running back from 2017 to 2020 to hit 200 touches. And Michael Carter with 183 touches was the most used Jets back in 2021. Now we can go through those years. You can see the injuries. I know they paid Jarek McKinnon a lot of money. He ended up not playing. We had nice stretches from Mostert, from Jeff Wilson. Even Michael Carter had nice stretches last year before he got hurt. He probably would have been over 200 without injuries. But I don't love that we have to kind of do those steps every single year to kind of talk this through. There is a chance that it's a 50-50 split, Dwayne. Maybe it's 40-40-20 with Tevin Coleman still getting 20% of the touches. I mean, we just acted like all of last offseason that Tevin Coleman didn't exist. He was the week one starter, and he continued to get a little bit of work. I mean, we've seen the Tevin Coleman's of the world, like Marlon Mack last year for Jonathan Taylor in the first six weeks. Thank Frank Reich, every single day that he said, screw this, we're just giving the ball to Jonathan Taylor the rest of the season. But we have seen coaches keep committees involved just for the sake of keeping the committees involved. And when we're using such a high pick on Brees Hall, it does run some risk. When you look at the guys he's going around, Zico Elliott, David Montgomery, Cam Akers, Elijah Mitchell, they don't have quite sure things either, but I guess, Dwayne, are, we're just betting on the we're betting on the draft capital, on the athletic upside, on the youth ahead of these other guys with probably a safer touch floor. Is that the play here? I'm comfortable with that, but we do need to realize like 
just like Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon last year, we can't just assume that the takeover is going to happen. Yeah, I think I think Melvin Gordon was a different was a little bit of a different scenario. I mean, I think you have to take each one of these, you know, kind of individually and yeah. really look at like who, what backfield are they landing with. But to to your point, I mean, Michael Carter, the the big knock on Carter is he had fourth round draft capital. Other than that, besides the injuries last year, like what else could we really have? Ex- like Michael Carter did what he needed to do yep. to show that he's a good back. So to your point, that's why I didn't like just project Brees Hall for like a sixty five percent workload. I felt a lot better like keeping it right around the fifty percent mark, um, you know, and get, leaving some room for like someone else to actually come in and take some of that work um, because I think it, it it is very plausible for me. Like against the backs you just talked about, um, I think the unknown of the upside for Hall just because he could be a more explosive player, like as a big part of it. Like I think Zeke actually probably has a better guarantee of a touch floor as long as he doesn't get hurt than Brees Hall. But I, yep. but, but Zeke is just such a shell at this point, like for the last three years, his explosive player rate, missed tackles force, all those things are so far down. Like it's pretty clear, like, you know, that Zeke's on the decline. Um, you know, even if we get the volume, like with Zeke, you're really going to be hoping with the touchdowns. But you could also say, but yeah, Dwayne, he's going to play in an offense that like, if we had to guess today, like you want to be in the Jets offense or the Cowboys, you want to be in the Cowboys offense. So we can go back and forth around these things. Um, to me though, I'm going to, I think the upside is still bigger with Brees Hall. Like I, 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 I totally buy into the range of outcomes for both players, but I just, I, I like going with the younger, fresher legs, you know, and it, it could end up being wrong, but I just feel like Brees Hall has the better chance to hit the home run for me than Zeke. The, the tricky one for me there that I've really been like kind of like just rolling around in my mind is like David Montgomery. Like, why are we like, and we talked about him a little earlier in the off season, but like if there was ever a season like where David Montgomery just gets to go ham the whole time, like it's this year, like Tariq Cohen. Yes. I mean, not Tariq Cohen. Um, Khalil Herbert came in and was nice. But he doesn't have the threat of a passing down, you know, uh, option, you know, playing with him this year. Um, they did draft, you know, another back later. But like, I, I feel like David Montgomery, man, like this could be the year where we look up and we're like, wow, like, why didn't we just see like David Montgomery lock him in 320 touches? Like if it was ever going to happen, it's this year. Um, not as explosive potentially as Brees Hall, but that's the one I struggle with more where I'm like, oh, should I really take Brees Hall over David Montgomery? Both have questions around the offense, but like I think I feel a lot better about Montgomery's touch floor, and he's still young, um, doesn't have a, a lot of work on him, so that that one's tricky for me. I think with Montgomery, it's like we know this offense is going to be terrible, and I don't know if he has that sort of a. I don't think his touch floor is nearly that. I think he can take a hundred touches off that. Why would Luke Jetsy, their new offensive coordinator, spend his entire time in Green Bay, not running the offense, but being around a bunch of committee backs, even though they had Aaron Jones, only to just feed Dave Montgomery, man? This is why I love Khalil Herbert and Alexander Madison even more, because they're both going into new offenses where maybe we do get Tony Pollard-esque standalone value. I'm not saying Montgomery is going to get his job taken or anything like that, but I'm also not so sure this new, completely new Bears organization from the front office the coaching staff is just going to be like yeah david montgomery he's a running back here like I'm, is a long-term contract coming probably not i don't think montgomery he's he's been good but i don't know if he's necessarily built enough goodwill with the new coaching staff and a new offense to just be completely featured so he's his payoff he has the upside i hear you there he has the upside in that range it's a tricky range, though. And I, think, I just think uh, A.J. Dillon versus Khalil Herbert are two very, very different things for me. And, and I get, like, the coaching thing. Like, for me, with a lot of these coaches, there are certain examples that I look back 
at. And I'm like, you know what? These coaches use committee, Bill Belichick. Like he's just going to always do it at running back. But then there are others that are a lot softer. Like when you really go back and you study the depth chart and all of a sudden they get a badass, you're like, yep, they just gave the dude the ball. And I'm not saying that David Montgomery is that. And we didn't, it's not even necessarily just a Bears example. But I think, um, you know, when you have a, when you spend a second round pick, you know, on a back like A.J. Dillon, that certainly puts some pressure, right, to use um, that player more. I don't know that we're going to have that same thing with Khalil Herbert. I agree with you on Herbert. I love him as a handcuff, um, and I think he's a guy that people should be talking about more, um, and I love the ADP on him. I'm just saying, if you look at Montgomery and Herbert, you know, basically pick any stat, and Herbert was able to outperform him in the same offense. 103 rush attempts. I mean, we can talk about the receiving. I know he doesn't have the same profile. Still caught 14 of 16 targets. I don't know that he's a liability. That will be interesting. I just, you know, Dwayne, that's going to be one of those things where if we see the first preseason game and Justin Fields plays three series and Dave Montgomery has like 15 of 16 snaps out there, okay, I'm in. Let's shoot him up there. Wouldn't be surprised if it's a little bit more split than we're necessarily anticipating, though. So, but with the Jets, Brees Hall, I do think deserving of being in that conversation. If you want to put Montgomery ahead of him, even Zeke ahead of him, I think you can have that conversation. But I think I'm with you, Dwayne. Let's just bet on that youthful upside, hopefully getting a little more explosiveness to help make up for the potential touch limitations or issues that, again, most of these running backs in the tier are also facing to various extents. Michael Carter, again, in that tier like would you want to take michael carter over someone like you know or sean white or alexander madison Dwayne, who i think they probably have a little bit better best case scenario upsides but to your point i think michael carter maybe i haven't given him enough credit for this he does have a nice handcuff case if Brees hall goes down yeah i think he belongs you know right there in in that tier or slightly above those guys like he's going to be close like i think if you're just looking at pure handcuff I agree. I think you can make an argument that one of those other two players, like if the handcuff thing hits, like in the, and if Fournette goes down and Rashad White does take over, that role is going to be worth more than taking over the Jets, you know, if Brees Hall goes down. But if you're looking at it as a combination, I think if you're looking at, hey, a player that could potentially give me a few weeks here or there in scoring value, but also has contingent upside, then I would bring, you know, Carter slightly ahead. And and so I think it really depends on like what you're looking for. Like, say, if you're sitting at that point in the draft and you've already got four backs and you feel good about that and you're just looking for that potential home run, like if everything works out, then you take Alexander Madison, right, over Michael Carter. But if, if you're sitting on only three backs at that point, and you need someone that can also give you a little something, you know, maybe two or three weeks of the season, especially in best ball, but then also you want a little bit of contingent upside, then Michael Carter's a pick. I did not want to take Michael Carter like 10 running back spots earlier and we're talking about, you know, your Chase Edmonds, your AJ Dillons of the world, but okay, back at this area, get some nice standalone value with the handcuff. Okay, I'm back in on Michael Carter being priced outside the top 40 RBs. And Brees Hall, again, don't hate the player, hate the price, looking pretty good for both of them. And also looking pretty good over at Underdog Fantasy. Best Ball Summer is here, everyone. And their Best Ball Mania Tournament has $10 million in total prize money. I am looking forward to taking a lot of that for myself. But $10 million, I mean, that's plenty for all of it to go around to Dwayne and all you listeners out there. And remember, just got to draft your fantasy team. And that's it. No waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Best Ball Season Underdog is here to give you your best score each week of the year and the highest scores at the end of the year. When champion of Best Ball Mania last year drafted in June. So there's no time like the present to join 
one underdog and take your shot at a million dollar draft. Plus, underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with the promo code PFF. And if you play 10 of those dollars, just $10 using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store. Play $10 with code PFF and draft your best ball mania team today. Also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Get Sunday, offering our listeners 20% off for a full season plans that start at just $129. And again, get that 20% off at checkout when you visit GetSunday.com slash forecast. That's 20% off your custom plan at GetSunday.com slash forecast. Wide receiver room. Got some good ones, Dwayne. Now, I did not ever... You know, I'm not a mock draft aficionado or anything like that. But when like Drake London, Garrett Wilson, all these guys are being mocked the Jets at number 10, I didn't really get it. I just thought that Elijah Moore, if he is as good as a lot of people think he could be, he's your one. Corey Davis, perfectly acceptable too. And maybe I was giving Braxton Berrios more credit, but you know, he did some good things at the end of the year. Good with the ball in his hands. Seemed like if he's your slot receiver, you're not in a terrible spot. Whatever. They added Garrett Wilson, who's fantastic. And to your point, we might be looking at this offense in a couple years and just being like, damn, we got two literally elite wide receivers to go along with plenty of options at tight end and running back. Zach Wilson's in a pretty good place. The question comes down to what exactly we should be expecting from these guys in the year 2022. The prices are better, though. Elijah Moore, someone that was going, you know, in the top 20 at certain points before the draft, he is now slipping to, I believe, wide receiver 32 ADP over underdog fantasy. Garrett Wilson's outside the top 40 because people look at this landing spot and don't get excited about it. Corey Davis essentially free going kind of that Jacoby Myers area outside the top 60 wide receivers going right now. So the question is, Dwayne, how confident can we be that what Elijah Moore did during his great stretch is what we're going to see for the whole year. Because I did take some time today and just, you know, being a bit of a dick as I am from time to time, went through some of these top receivers and just came to the conclusion that, man, you really can make this case for almost not, not to the same extent as Elijah Moore necessarily, but like, look, Amon Ross St. Brown from weeks 13 to 18, wide receiver two. Elijah Moore from weeks seven through 13 was the wide receiver three. Kadarius Tony in weeks four through five, wide receiver seven. Jalen Waddle, weeks six through 18, was the wide receiver eight. Devontae Smith from weeks four through 10 was the wide receiver 15. I know there's a difference between a two week sample size and a six week sample size, but I don't want to just take the single best part of Elijah Moore's year. Remove the fact that Zach Wilson wasn't there for a lot of it. Remove the fact that Corey Davis wasn't there for a lot of it. Remove the fact that Garrett Wilson is now in the equation and just be like we're looking at a wide receiver one. We talk about all these things with the Monroe St. Brown. I'm not so sure Elijah Moore is getting that same sort of discussion. So basically, Dwayne, the question comes down to, do we really believe Elijah Moore is going to be one of the top 15, top 20 wide receivers in this game for a long time? Because he might have to be in order to make the most out of, let's face it, not a huge target share probably coming his way in this in this crowded offense. Yeah, you're just betting on talent, man. I mean, that's what you're doing with these guys. He's wide receiver 31 now. So, I mean, even though we may not have talked about it yet, like 80, I mean, it's already what the market's thinking. Like, you know, he was. And he was he got up to, I think, wide receiver 18 at one point in the preseason. Um, but for me, like, Look, the rookies that come out and hit all the metrics that he did, regardless of how he did it, um, you know, the targets per route run 1.75, you know, we'd love him to be at a two before a rookie. That's still really good. was almost at the 75 PFF receiving grade. Like he checks a lot of the boxes, you know. And so, again, in the range where he's going, you're going to be making 
choices one way or another, typically I'm just going to go with the talent versus versus players where I might just think, oh, they're just in a good situation, but I haven't at least seen the flash on the talent. And so I think it just depends like on what's available, you know, at that spot in your draft as a wide receiver three with upside. Like I'm, I'm, I love drafting Elijah Moore as my wide receiver three. Like I'll have no qualms about it, but I will also have no problems drafting Garrett Wilson as my wide receiver four. You know, so I, I want to have exposure to both those players. In fact, I will be over the market and exposure on both of those players at their current price tags. We'll see what happens through the summer. You know, do do one of those two guys get boosted back up the board or do they kind of, you know, hold each other and check, you know, at that wide receiver, th- wide receiver three, wide receiver four territory, which is really what I'm hoping for. Who do we how would you if all of them play 17 games? How big of a target difference do you think there will really be between Elijah Moore, Garrett Wilson, and Corey Davis? I have Elijah Moore projected at 22% right now, Garrett Wilson at 18%, and I have Corey Davis at 15%. Do you think that's what we hope will happen? Because, man, Davis, he was out there. He was the number one over Elijah Moore to start the season. He was. I mean, Corey Davis could be, but here's the way I'm thinking about it. Um, Like, I I could give a shit about Corey Davis at this point. Like, if I'm trying to win a fantasy league, he's not going to do it. He got hurt. Why? Why are we just dismissing Corey Davis? Because they, he now, had, yeah, but Corey Davis, look, like he's he was he was around one pick five, but he's never truly broken out, you know. So we've never seen the breakout from him at this point. I'm just assuming that the Corey Davis breakout isn't coming now that they've added another player. I and it, and I'm fine with it. It's a safe bet. Could Corey Davis break out and be something? He could, but I'm much more likely to put my chips on the two younger players. Um, and I think the the target the pecking order will it'll work out something like what I just said. Could it end up being Garrett Wilson at 15% instead of 18% and Corey Davis at 18 instead of 15? Could they flip-flop? Yeah. Could Corey Davis be the guy at 22%? Yeah, like he could be. Um, I would put my chip on Elijah Moore leading the way. I, I think you could make a bigger argument with Corey Davis and Garrett Wilson. Also, I'm not so sure that Garrett Wilson would be playing the slot. Like there's a lot of talk about Elijah Moore kicking inside into the slot and Garrett Wilson playing outside when they're in three wide receiver sets. So we'll have to see what happens with that. But if that is the case and Elijah Moore is going to get to stay on the field in the two wide receiver sets as well, that's also going to be a bonus um, for him. And so that's, that's none of that's locked in. That's just where, you know, that's what the talking heads are kind of saying, like at this point in the preseason, um, we don't, we don't have all the data yet though. I'm not in on Corey Davis. I would, Rather take Jacoby Myers at that price point. I just think he has a higher target ceiling and stuff. I guess more so the point is like, could Corey Davis do what he like? If you look at those, I, I don't think anyone is debating, you know, Corey Davis versus AJ Brown, which one is more talented. But like, you look at those Titans years, and yeah, we know which wide receiver is making more use out of his targets. But I mean, 2020, Corey Davis had 92 targets in 14 games, AJ Brown had 84 targets in 16 games. That was in 2019. Excuse me. I'm just talking out my ass right now. Six, nine targets in 15 games, and then 92 and 14 for Davis. AJB was 84 and 16, 106 and 14. So I'm just saying, like, Corey Davis was a different team, but he's proved to be a bit of a thorn in the side to a receiver as good as AJ freaking Brown. He was able to get 59 targets in nine games last year. I mean, Corey Davis is a number three receiver that will probably have triple digit targets if he's healthy for the entire season. That's not ideal in an offense that we already have to worry about with the volume and production. I I think the main point here is that a lot of there's any I don't think there's any way Corey Davis gets the triple digit targets. Like, I mean, I just don't I, I mean, could it I mean, he's done it once in his career. Now, some of it is injury related to your point. Like he's 
he's only had one season that he played every he played all the games. Last year was only nine games. But like like his targets per route run for his career, 19%, 22%, 17%. He did have a 24% of his last year in Tennessee, which was his best year. He also broke the two the, he hit the 2.58 yards per route run, which he has never done before. Um, in his career, he had been at 1.14. Part of that inflated from the Titans play action to wide yeah. receiver set stuff. But but still, still, to your point, give him credit. Like, and we think this offense should use more play action. So, I mean, I think we can make arguments that this offense, if if things work out right for the Jets, this offense won't be totally like a Titans that run heavy, but it would be a more balanced offense. So, I mean, look. When I projected it, like Corey Davis is what kept me from getting overexcited about the other two players, right? But I just didn't project him above them. You know, it's kind of like last year. Like I wasn't going to project Tyler Boyd above uh, Jamar Chase and T. Higgins. Like I liked Tyler Boyd, but I was definitely going to put him below because I think the ceiling, the ceiling case for the two younger elite players was much higher. And I I think it's the same kind of case here. And not to say Elijah Moore and – um, Garrett Wilson, R.T. Higgins, and Jamar Chase, because that would be an extreme example. Like, I'm not saying that, but it's the same kind of premise, right? I would rather, I'd rather put my chips on the two um, younger guys. But to your point, like, Corey Davis is a pain in the ass. Like, he's a pain in the ass. He's not going like, away. Like, <laughs> right. It, it's, it's, it's tough for you to say, oh, Elijah Moore's got like this 28% target share. Like, I could never project that. I mean, I only gave him 22%. Like, I would, I, if I was just ranking this the way I wanted, like I would have been like 25% Elijah Moore, 24% Garrett Wilson, 5% Corey Davis. Um, but I gave Davis 15. I mean, I gave CJ Uzoma 11%. Like when you're doing these things, it's like, you gotta, you gotta dole it out, you know, the way you think that it could actually play out. Um, but I still, the ceiling, I just feel is better for Moore and for Wilson. Absolutely. With that said, Corey Davis signed that three-year, $37.5 million deal last offseason. Clearly, they didn't give him that money, you know, anticipating that he just wouldn't be involved in the offense at all in 2022. Also, maybe they weren't all that pleased with him, and that's why they took Garrett Wilson 10th overall. Big moral of the story, Dwayne, is that we would have far more issues to be kind of talking about here if Elijah Moore and Garrett Wilson were going, you know, 10 spots and wide receiver ADP ahead of where they are now. With Moore, where he's at, I have him as my wide receiver 30. I thought that was, again, based on where we were seeing before the draft, I was like, well, damn, I guess I'm not going to be getting much Elijah Moore. But where he's going, I'm cool with that. And especially Garrett Wilson even having, uh, you know, that potential to get him a round or two later. So it will be interesting to see who ends up seizing the slot job. But I don't know, man. Like Elijah Moore, Garrett Wilson, if they're as good as we think they are, put them in the slot, put them outside. I think they'll be just fine. I think the slot narrative yeah, I think the key is a little overrated. Is, yeah. But I think the key to that is like who gets to stay on the, the – the biggest thing is who's going to stay on the field in the right. two wide sets, right? Yeah. If Garrett Wilson – or Elijah Moore, either one are just the slot receiver or for whatever reason are not out there in two wides, but Corey Davis is, that's a problem. Because like if all of a sudden we saw all the tight ends they signed, they're going to run 12 personnel when they can, you know, so we're going to see enough of that. Like it's not going to be like 50% of their offense or anything, but if they come out and run 12 personnel, all of a sudden like 25% of the plays last year, I want to say it was like under 10%, like that's 15% less, you know, plays that can be in 11 where all three of those guys on the, are on the field. So the, the slot does help because you get easier coverage. But the big thing is, is like which which players are going to get to stay on the field? Because if the Jets get better, like that could really change the dynamic of how often they're using, you know, the three wide receiver sets. And at that point, like someone is getting left out. 
Got to also consider the importance of the fullback, as we've been talking about on a couple of these episodes. Nick Baldwin is on the roster. Last season, he did not play in the first nine weeks of the year before season, you know, anywhere between one and 13 snaps per game down the stretch. Hey, if we're in an offense like the Jets, where, you know, that pie isn't all that big to begin with the production, we have to worry about each and every piece that goes into it. So I think the moral of the story, Dwayne, I don't want to talk about these tight ends. I already got that off my chest in the beginning. Don't draft the Jets tight ends. And yeah, there we go. That wraps up that section. Moral of the story here is we can poke holes in the potential arguments for Brees Hall, Michael Carter, Elijah Moore, Garrett Wilson. We'll even throw Corey Davis in there alike. Like when you have Zach Wilson, who we're, we can poke holes in him too. We're not confident in this being a great offense next year by any stretch, but there is reason to believe because of all these parts, they could certainly be better than they were last year. And all this uncertainty, all these things, all these issues we've talked about has resulted in basically everyone being affordable. Like you'd really have to be a hater, I think, to look at any of these ADPs and just be like, I'm completely out on this. So that'd be my big kind of, I guess, positive from talking through this Jets team. Like where everyone's going right now, I don't think there's anyone other than the tight ends, of course, that I'm just completely saying no to. I'm with you. Like to me, I, I'm going to draft more Elijah Moore now. Like before with Garrett Wilson not on the team, like I had him, I think, and I had him inside my top 20. I don't know if I had him ahead of the ADP of 18 or not, but it, it was close. Right. And, and I, so I was already confident in him and I wanted to draft him, but I at least wanted to wait until the NFL draft was over now that he's wide receiver 31. Like to me, like, if you really think a player's good, like Elijah Moore, like just because they draft Garrett Wilson, like doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean like, Oh my God, now I can't draft him. The way I look at it is I'm going to probably have more because now I don't have to spend like that pick. Um, where I'm like, okay, it's for sure I'm spending this wide receiver two pick. I feel like there's more room for Elijah Moore to be forgiving, you know, where you get him at ADP now. And he could still end up being the same stub we thought he was already going to be. Like, if we look at it, rookie hit rates, like these receivers coming out, like Gary Wilson, we don't know. He may not do anything this year, right? It may just be Elijah Moore and Corey Davis. So I think there are a lot of paths. You know, Elijah Moore could A, just ball out, right, and be great. And these other guys could be good too, and he's fine. Or, you know, we could have a scenario where Corey Davis takes a step back. You have a situation where Garrett Wilson doesn't play as good. Elijah Moore still playing good. Like, there's just so many different paths. So when I can take him as a wide receiver three, like, to me, it makes it a lot easier just to add on extra exposure. I would note too with Elijah Moore, something I've like hinted at in other episodes. And I was finally, I finally took the time today to go through and look at some of the uh, specific numbers. And I was wrong before. So shame on me. Like he did have, you know, he had the shorter hot stretch, but I thought maybe a lot of that production, I think it was from that Colts game when he scored like two late touchdowns. Incorrectly, yeah. I was kind of thinking maybe he has a little bit of that Jalen Hurts, that DeAndre Swift, how much of these numbers were really coming when the game was out of reach. And the answer was not an overwhelming amount of. I mean, if you look at the first half, second half splits, he was putting up more numbers in the first half of those games. So wasn't just the result of like, you know, the Jets just getting the complete piss, getting beaten out of them. And then, you know, Elijah just getting a couple of yards at the end of the games. He was doing plenty of that in the first quarter as well. So I'm still uh, I'll still be barking about the Michael Carter stuff. I mean, seven games with Zach Wilson. He had 19 targets, three with Mike White. He had 26. So I'm not done. With, I'm not done uh, yelling up atop of that mountain yet. But Elijah Moore. Uh, uh, certainly someone that I do not want to discount, particularly at that price point. Dwayne, AFC East, we did it. Anything we else you want it. to talk about uh, from this, you know, I don't want to say lovely division, but it's an NFL division. No, I think we hit on it. And, and look, I think the beauty, like, uh, and this has happened actually with several of the teams, you know, 
the ADPs are adjusting. Um, and the, so the market's pretty efficient, <laughs> you know, when you look at it. Um, and, and I've noticed that like ADPs have been sharper and sharper and sharper, like over the last four to five years. And so used to, I felt that there was a bigger advantage, you know, of finding these pockets where you're, you know, like way above ADP or maybe you're below. And we're still, we'll still talk about those guys. We'll still talk about values, but like the, the big takeaway for me so far is yeah, we've got a few extra questions around a lot of these players that we didn't have before the NFL draft, um, but the market's already baked those in. And so it's made it a situation where we can still afford to get exposure, even if you wanna be a little aggressive versus the market, I think you can on some of these players and it's not gonna be at a huge detriment to your team, especially when we're talking about guys that go in like the sixth, seventh and eighth rounds, right? You don't wanna get over, way overweight on your first and second round picks. Um, you know, you probably want to be pretty close to, you know, just being you like being diversified. There may be certain guys you're avoiding, but whenever you get to these later rounds, what I like is that the market has made an adjustment. And so now I don't like it would have really sucked. Right. If Elijah Moore, if, if his ADP hadn't changed any right after they added Garrett Wilson, because it was like, as much as I loved him, it was already like, OK, he was so far up there that even before you were having a little bit of a hard time pulling the trigger. And then you add Garrett Wilson. It's like, okay, now it's even a little bit more hard. Then you start, like you said, your concern is like, can I get any, can I get any of Elijah Moore? At that point, you just, you force yourself a few times, right. To take him, you know, even at an ADP that you don't like if you're drafting a bunch of teams, but overall the market's pretty sharp, which means we can continue to target these players and we don't have to feel crazy about it. Like if we want to target them just a little bit ahead of ADP um, versus what we were seeing before. And I want to, Dwayne, maybe when we do like our um, stream episode next week, or if we do a Q&A one, like one thing I want to hit on early in this offseason is let's identify those 10 to 15 guys who are either injured right now or have some legal stuff going on and their ADPs maybe are not like having that. So let's try to see if we get news about Jameson Williams, like later in the summer, like how is that going to impact everything else? Because Elijah Moore, and you know, you did a great job of this before the draft. We knew certain players like Gabriel Davis, like, okay, we're not drafting them right now because everything is everything that could go right. is already being baked into that ADP, but you know, like what if Michael Thomas in this, injury that he's having continues to kind of not be great. Chris Olave is going to be shooting up. What if we hear word that Dalvin cooks potential legal problems end up being a big problem. Alexander Madison is going to shoot up like there. When you go through a draft, you just start there's just like eight or 10 guys. That I think if we're just really focused on, we can maybe get some early value uh, as we continue to do it. But this is great, man. May 13th. We're just, we're just grinding, man. What? Who's yeah, got man. better than us? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody like we have, <laughs> we have the best jobs. No, we're, we're thankful. You know, who has it better. Hopefully, hopefully the listeners do like we, we hope we're, we hope you're doing it. We're doing a good job for you guys. We appreciate you guys all tuning in and uh, I'm, I'm happy, man. Ian just get to come on here and hang out with you every day. So looking forward to, I, I love the idea around the strategy stuff. I mean, to me, like that's something you should always be thinking about if you're drafting all throughout the summer is which players have the biggest chance to get steamed or have a change in value you know, with some logic behind it, right? We could make an argument for any player to go up in value. Um, but we've actually done the research where we looked at, okay, what types of players move the most? So I think we need to definitely come back and like look back at that list, like what you're talking about. I had a chance to share a best ball stream with Justin Herzig, who uh, actually won one of the recent just massive underdog uh, tournaments and got some doozies for our next stream, uh, Dwayne, that I want to steal from Justin and just pretend like I thought of uh, all along. No, I'll give him credit. But just some certain things where like, you know, when you get into the best, like the way his mind was working was stuff like 
drafting Naeem Hines like later, even though he had Jonathan Taylor, because Jonathan Taylor might advance him into the final round of, you know, 379 lineups. But then what if he gets hurt? Then you're the only lineup in that final round with Naeem Hines. So the way the best ball structure works, you know, is different than redraft, especially dynasty. It's like a different and honestly, game you can going use a there. Lot of those same things for redraft. Like it's all yeah. about correlation. It's mm-hmm. if then, like if this happens, who benefits, right? Yeah. And so that's that's the deal with, you know, Jonathan Taylor. You know, I it's the same thing really with Alexander Madison. I know last year I thought it was kind of funny. A lot of people were just totally against like any kind of handcuff of Madison in a best ball to Dalvin Cook. Like and I think if, it depends on how you're thinking about it. Like if you make it into that final round and Dalvin Cook's who took you there and all of a sudden he goes down and you have Alexander Madison and say before. Uh, there was 150 teams and 75 of them had Dalvin Cook because he carried everyone. But now all of a sudden there are only three teams that have Madison and you have Madison. And we know the correlation of when Dalvin Cook goes down. Exactly. What does that mean for Alexander Madison? So it's all just, yeah, Herzig's super smart. Um, for me, like the simplest way for people to think about it, it's all about correlation, right? You know, what are the different, it's not just quarterback to wide receiver to tight end stacks. There are no. different correlations that can occur um, you know, in different ways. And and you just got to kind of think through some of those scenarios and, and what that looks like, especially at the end of the year in the big money weeks, yep. you know, in the matchups and all that kind of stuff, like tiebreakers, like picking players that play in the same division, right? So you're more likely if you get the blow up game, you know, you get them all going off together. There's all sorts of stuff, but yeah, it's, 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 it's fun times. Love it. Well, I'm going to let Dwayne get back to his family. I'm sure we could run this another 60 minutes if we really wanted to. What are you talking about? I got to work on more projections. I got to go mulch, man. Let's go. Get in the hands there. For Dwayne, I'm Ian. Thanks again for tuning the PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. Until next time, take care.